This is the Unsung Interview, introducing the sports stars you don't know, telling the stories you can't miss. It was 200 years ago this year that a young scholar by the name of William Webb Ellis decided to take the game of football into his own hands, quite literally. He picked up the ball and ran from his opponents and in doing so invented what we now know as rugby. The sport now boasts over half a billion fans across 132 countries and is played by over 8 million people around the world. It's more popular than it's ever been, but there are also questions around its future, with recent concerns surrounding the potential long-term health impacts of playing the game, particularly at an elite level that was professionalised only as recently as 1995. So, as the 10th Rugby World Cup takes centre stage, the latest episode of Unsung sees me chat to someone who's witnessed firsthand the transformation of the professional game and is best placed to discuss its hot-button topic. John Mayhew was doctor to the All Blacks for over 200 matches, beginning in the amateur era in 1988, before moving on to work at rugby league side New Zealand Warriors in 2003. Now in his late 60s, Doc Mayhew continues to be involved in professional-level rugby in his home city of Auckland. In our chat, the Doc describes tending to legends like Michael Jones, Sean Fitzpatrick, Richie McCaw, and of course, Jonah Lomu, with whom he forged a close bond while treating the winger's genetic kidney disease. We also discuss the perils of treating his own rugby-playing sons, his World Cup memories, not all of them fond, and the challenges of working with the toughest of players who refuse to hear that they're hurt. To no surprise, this includes a story about renowned Kiwi hardman Buck Shelford, who once famously finished a game against France without realising one of his testicles had been ripped from his scrotum. Sheesh. John spoke to me on the eve of the Rugby World Cup, and we began our conversation talking about his first impressions on taking the job as All Blacks doctor in 1988. When I got in, we'd, we'd just won the 87 World Cup. We had a team of incredibly good players who were very hard-nosed. And, uh, you know, you had the Grant Fox, the uh, Michael Jones, John Kerwin, Sean Fitzpatrick, Richard Lowe, Steve McDowell, you know, I mean, Gary Wett and Alan Wett, you know, I mean, world-class players. And for my first three years with the team, we, we never lost a game. I mean, initially, I got involved thinking it was going to be something I'd, I'd do for a couple of years, I'd carry on in my medical career. I never thought it would be my full-time job for, for a long period of time, and, and to a certain extent, it still is now, you know. So, I mean, obviously, with the rugby game professional in the end of 95, it enabled me to carry on, because obviously, we got paid, players got paid, management got paid, so it became a job. I'm interested in the transformation of the game, because you, more than most, will have seen you know, exactly how it was before professional and then how it developed. How did you find that? The transition to professional rugby in New Zealand was was huge. And I think we're very lucky at that stage to have John Hart as the, the all-black coach. And they put up a system in New Zealand where we had uh, five major provincial super sides. And then, so that was a full-time professional competition. And uh, the players paid according to their, their status, so to speak. And there was a minimum payment, so it was it was a it was a dramatic change. I mean, players weren't having to balance their you know, jobs as policemen or you know teachers or or whatever. You found that prior to that, a lot of the, the top players were either students, teachers, worked for government type jobs where you'd get paid leave when you went away with an all black team, and and that that dramatically changed. So any player could get paid. I can remember when we. Uh, first went professional, the all-black players, you know, they got you know, obviously money, they got like, given car sponsorship and things like that. So it was a dramatic change. And I think it, it elongated the careers of some players that, you know, they before, you know, you might have a player playing at the top level for four or five years and think, oh, I've got to get on and get a proper job. 
you know, I've got a young family now, and so players were then sort of having careers with with the young families. You know, that before uh, when I first started with the All Blacks, not many of the players or you know had had families as such, because generally by the time they got to a family, it was towards the end of their career, and um, they couldn't afford to be a rugby player and not have time with the family. So it had a dramatic effect. I think it, it certainly helped the um, Polynesian and Maori players and it helped players who struggle or may have struggled to get reasonably high-paying jobs. Otherwise, you know, that, you know, it was okay when you had someone like a David Kirk who was a doctor, come, you know, a businessman or whatever. A lot of the players, Grant Fox and people like that, had careers mapped out for them. Gary Whitten, who went on to be an all-black captain, he was working for a large home appliance company, manufacturing company, and they were very good. They they paid his wages, but the other players were some of them really struggling. I think when I first got involved, the international payment was twenty pounds a day. You're allowed to be paid. So if you went away on tour and you you get one hundred and forty pound a week, which if you went to Argentina, that that converted into a lot of money. Or you went to South Africa, it converted. But you know the UK or New Zealand. It, wasn't a lot to live on, you know. And medically then, how, how did you see the, the, the game change in that time? You know, the, the types of injuries change? And... You've got to go back to medicine. I mean, it's only in the early 80s that we were actually successfully repairing anti-accretion ligaments. So MRI scanning was in its infancy in 1985, 86, you know, seven. I, you know, when I was sitting training in sports medicine, MRI was something which I knew about but didn't have, wasn't able to use. So... Technology has certainly helped. The treatment of injuries has, has changed dramatically. The biggest change, and I think you're going to talk about it later, was head injuries. The the awareness of head injury, the management of head injuries is so much better. There's a lot of conflicting data about the consequences of, you know, repetitive head injury and, and in the impact in later life, and some of that's been overstated. But obviously it's not a good thing to play a sport where your head gets potentially damaged, so you've got to be careful there. So I think the awareness, I think that imaging, I think we've had doctors and surgeons who are more attuned to the needs of sportsmen. So it's dramatically changed and other other technologies. But I think the biggest changes would be imaging, the way MRI scanning and things like that. So you get a more accurate diagnosis early and better surgical treatment of of injuries and awareness. 30 years ago, most medial ligament tears of the knee we would surgically repair. Nowadays, we found by putting them in a, a, a splint and managing it non-surgically, we get as good an outcome. And similarly, uh, with Achilles tendon rupture, they get as well treated non-surgically as surgically. And I can remember in the 1989 tour, John Kerwin, who was our world-class winger, ruptured his Achilles tendon we were in Newport. And we operated on that night. I helped out the surgeon, a guy, Greg Jones. <laughs> we, we repaired his Achilles tendon and he did that. To, to help us out. And nowadays, we're, we're a wee bit better than that. But the technology, the awareness, obviously drug testing's come in, and that came in about the time I got involved with the All Blacks, really. So there's awareness of what you can and can't do and make it an even playing field. In terms of the types of injuries, did you find that those changed? You know, with obviously professionalising, saw so that players training every day. And- yeah, well, the biggest change, you notice that, uh, and we've had data to back it up, that they the average rugby player is much bigger and stronger than they were. You know, I mean, certainly in the 80s, you didn't have many players who were doing much gym training. Uh, they were aerobically breakfast. And the game was more aerobically demanding, but strength was important. But in New Zealand, we seem to have a cohort of big, strong farmers who 
plating our forwards and intelligence or whoopee and back, sort of, so to speak. But we found that the advent of professional rugby, uh, the players were bigger, they were stronger, they were able to do two or three gym sessions a week, you know what I mean, as well as their other training. So it was a marked increase. I think the average back in New Zealand over a 10-year period post-professional, you know, they, they increased in size by about an average about 10 kilograms and uh, forwards were quite big. But And nowadays, it's uncommon in a rugby team to see a forward under 100 kilograms, you know, it'd be, be unusual. Uh, near 110, you have a lot of backs who are, you know, well over 100 kilograms now. I mean, obviously, Jonah was, was 115, 120, depending on when you weighed him. But, you know, John Kerwin was mostly one of the first big, big wingers. You know, halfbacks now, Justin Marshalls and, you know, people like that, they were, they were big halfbacks. The needs of the game has changed. I think what, from a medical point of view, what's changed the most is that there's a lot more collisions in the modern game now. You know, that everyone used to hate rucking, you know, with the love by New Zealand teams. And, okay, it might have inflicted a lot of stripes on people's backs and things like that and some lacerations, but it mostly made the game safer, you know, in a way, because it was that unwritten law, you didn't go near the head, you know, obviously at the time. So in my, uh, you know, early days dealing with people like Buck Shelford, I'd hate to think how many stitches I put into him. Every game, he was killing the ball and the opposition took to him and it was part of the game. But nowadays, in, in some of the changes, you know, the jackal and things like that and, they're inherently very dangerous, so we're seeing a lot more uh, knee, you know, hamstring sort of avulsions. And you know, my own son who's still playing, Nick, he, he's had, you know, he's playing the Argentina side. He was over the ball in the jackal position. He got cleaned out, and his hamstring was avulsed off the bone. Christ! And then now, when I played rugby, you know, you'd be on the ground. You know, you wouldn't be trying to stand up. So I think the, the players are bigger, stronger. And I think we're seeing more major injuries and, and it's not uncommon now for me to, to be at a high-level game for a couple of weeks and never put a suture in. Now, 20 years ago, that would be uncommon, you know. So the spectrum of injuries has changed. I think it's more the training has made them bigger and stronger and the collisions are that much harder. And there's a lot more collisions, you know what I mean? You get props and locks now who are making upwards of, you know, 20 tackles a game. You know, in my day, you know, if you're a lock or a prop, you know, it's pretty unlucky if you had to make two or three tackles in a game. And um, you went to a lot of rucks, you did a lot more running. So the, the, the game has changed and, and the injury pattern has changed as well. And you sort of hinted at that just, just before, but obviously the, the big talking point, the, the, the controversial topic in, in the sport is obviously about the, the head injuries and, um, and their links to further degenerative issues in, in the future. And there's an ongoing class action lawsuit by hundreds of players against world rugby. I mean, how do you, how do you see that issue? I know it's a, it's a, it's a tricky one, but medically you're, in, you're probably among the best place to talk about it. I think we've got to be very careful here and look at the science rather than the emotion. And I get concerned. I mean, getting a hit on the head is not good for you. That's rule number one. And I think rugby's tried to make the game, and rugby league, make the game safer. So outlawing and managing the acute head injury much better, you know, all those sort of things. The other point you're talking about, it, what are the current long-term effects of head injury? Now, we've had a number of cases in New Zealand where players ex-players have had dementia, but there are lots of other reasons why they may have dementia. From a medical point of view, dementia is multifactorial. And just because you're an ex-player 
doesn't mean that your dementia is related to your sport. So I'm not trying to exonerate, but there have been examples in New Zealand and overseas where the evidence is not very good that the repeated head injuries, so-called, are the cause of their dementia or things like that. In situations where it might be early Alzheimer's, which we know is no relation to trauma, alcohol, drugs, and things like that. And some of that early studies that were done in American football were slightly misleading. You know, when they, subsequent studies have shown the incident of dementia is the same as other age match controls of people who didn't play sports. So is it a problem or is it, uh, unfortunately in the States, the, uh, the class action there, the sport gave up and just said, look, we'll pay up. It would have been very good to actually tested it scientifically. So it's an area where there's a lot of emotion and there's a lot of people who are suffering significant health consequences. Now, are there consequences of playing sport? You and I, we may be ex-sportsmen, but our Parkinson's or our dementia may or may not be related to that. And the work is not conclusive there. So I think we have to be very careful and look at it in each case. I'm aware of the class action in the United Kingdom, but there's not a lot of science to back it up. There's a lot of emotion. You know, these players have got, you know, disabling, terrible conditions. So I'm not in the were they caused by recurrent head injury? You know, what we do know is that if you're an average player, you have a concussion and you fully recover from each one, there's no cumulative effect. Sure, in the 70s and 80s, the management concussion wasn't as good and rugby league was even worse. So, you know, that, that, but well, I think we've tidied that aspect of the game up now that we are managing head injury. And believe me, as a practicing sports medicine doctor, the management of a concussed player is one of the hardest parts of the job. You know, now in professional sport, we've got the sideline video, we've, we're linked up to the coaches, we have spotters in the crowd, we have all sorts of things to help us. And we still miss hearing I was at a game last night with North Harbour playing Otago and one of our players suffered a head injury. I couldn't see it in real time, but the independent match doctor, you know, looked at the video and drew it to my attention and, and the guy was concussed. And we're, so we're managing those sort of, you know, players better now. I think some of the rule changes in rugby have gone a bit too far. You know, like rugby is a contact game and head injury will be a consequence of that and head collisions. And we saw in the, the Irish series against the All Blacks last year, an All Black prop getting sent off when he tackled a player and his head hit the opponent's head. You know, it was completely accidental. Red card, I mean, it, it spoiled the game. The, the All Blacks played for, you know, 60 minutes with 14 players. And, and I'm worried that sort of thing will happen in the World Cup. That it's well-meaning, but, you know, you've got to allow that there are going to be some accidental head injuries. Obviously, we want to reduce that as much as we can, but by red-carding an accidental head collision, to me, is not the solution. And, and one of the things from a, the perspective of a, a rugby doctor is, and, and you kind of mentioned it there, is this is a, this is a tough sport with tough players who quite often, certainly more so back in the day, just didn't want to listen to the medical advice. So if you're telling a player that he shouldn't be playing, that he should now come off, he's probably saying a few choice words to you, I imagine. How did you manage that relationship? I mean, and that did happen, you know, and, uh, you know, we generally managed to get the player off. And uh, it's interesting now, that that's changed you know, in the modern game. And I still look after some NRL sides when they come to New Zealand, so I'm involved with rugby league as well. There's a, a general acceptance now that head injury is something serious. And, you know, the idea of playing on, what a tough bloke who got knocked out and played on, 
uh, that's gone out of both the codes and, and, and it's good. But you're right that in the 80s, I mean, obviously, sometimes as a consequence of eating head injury, if you have a calf, you, they sometimes become a bit aggressive and you can't remember things. And interesting, this young player last night, he, he came off, he couldn't remember coming off. He failed the concussion test and after the game, he said to me, I'm good to go next week, aren't I? You know? And obviously, he was a head injury. So sometimes the, the aggressive comments are, is part of the injury. But you find now that I, I particularly don't find it a problem. But I think that, that macho thing is going away. I mean, as a doctor, I don't mind playing people playing with minor injuries or a minor rib fracture or a minor AC joint problem or things. My, my rationale is that I'm going to see these guys later in life and uh, I don't want them to come back to me and say, you shouldn't have let me play as a result of this. I can't walk now. So, and head injuries are non-negotiable. Obviously, a neck injury, I'd rather over-diagnose neck injury. And, and I'm in the unique position now. I am seeing players 30 years post-career. You know, I facilitated Michael Jones to have a, a knee joint replacement this year. He has a famous All Black who has played for the All Blacks and Rugby League. He had bilateral knee replacement. My, my brother-in-law, Gary Witten, an ex-All Black captain, he's had a, a knee joint replacement. So I am actually seeing these guys post-career and I like to think that I didn't stuff up their, their lives. And you do develop a relationship with these players, but I think as a, a rugby doctor or a sports medicine doctor, you've got to still think, okay, this may be the, the most famous rugby player in the world, but he's still a patient. And as a doctor, you know, you're on the field sometimes and you think, well, I know the state of the game. If I take Richie McCaw off, it could affect the outcome of the game. But if he has to come off, he has to come off. And you've got to put your sort of team allegiance aside. And that can be hard sometimes because you may you may have the coach, you know, and you're saying, you know, you're sure he has to come off or, you know, but it's educating the coach. And did that, did, did you find that it caused friction sometimes between yourself and the coach? I mean, we had robust discussions, I think would be the way to put it. <laughs> Diplomatic, yeah. Yeah, and some of the early coaches, you know, uh, in this sort of more amateur era, they didn't understand it. And some of the rugby league coaches initially that I was involved with felt that it was okay to play with significant injuries. I mean, I don't mind someone playing with a dislocated finger or a broken finger or, you know, whatever, broken rib, but there are some things which obviously you players have to come off and obviously head injury or suspected neck injury. But no, I've been... I've been lucky that most of the coaches I've dealt with, they may reluctantly agree, but they're caught up in the emotional game as well and the, the conflict. And, you know, if it's a World Cup, you know, like this this weekend, you know, All Black France, it'll be, it's hard to make a medical decision in front of 80,000 Frenchmen, you know, buying for blood. So, and you've got to be cold-hearted about it and make the right decision. And and on that topic then, what what are your sort of favourite experiences and memories from from World Cup campaigns that you were involved in? I mean, I, I've got involved in a lot of World Cups which didn't end very well for New Zealand, you know. And, uh, but no, I mean, obviously, I loved, you know, Jonah Loma, you know, involved in that. Obviously, that's a great experience. And then again, he had 99 when he played against England. I scored a couple of tries there as well. Though, mostly later in that uh, same tournament, it was one of my worst experiences. We were up, you know, 15 points against France and, you know, managed to lose the game. So, uh, but I, I think the things I've loved most at rugby is being involved with. These players, I mean, obviously I had a unique relationship with Jonah Lomi. I looked after him for a number of years. You know, unfortunately he was there at his death. And obviously I see Sean Fitzpatrick still players like that, Michael Jones and Richie McCaw. These are true world-class players. Buck Shelford, I still see Buck. And and so it's what I treasure most of the relationship with these players and thinking, well, 
I did my best I could for them and looked after them. And subsequently, um, I still see them now. So I think I, I enjoy that. The the medical challenges you know, are great sometimes. You know, you've had players with epilepsy you've played who, who wanted to keep their epilepsy secret. Obviously, people with diabetes can be a, a challenge for us. Jonah Loma was a, was a huge challenge for me because um, we we kept it quiet for a number of years. You know, and even though it was a, the biggest name in the game, we managed to keep it quiet, the treatment of his kidney disease and then subsequent renal transplant dialysis and things like that and his untimely death. So uh, all those things are, you know, highlights and, and I suppose lowlights as well. It's the players and people, you know, uh, and, you know, you, you meet some, you know, world-class you know, players, the opposition players, you know, the, the George Gregan, uh, you know, Martin Johnson, Francois Pinar, good people. I think rugby and yeah, rugby league, you know, at that level, the, the quality of people is truly pretty good. I've had the unique opportunity to, to have, you know, relationships with them. Back to my conversation with Doc Mayhew shortly, where he reveals whose dislocated shoulder he popped back in place in front of an audience of thousands. But first, a word about our unsung charity partner. Leading social care charity Community Integrated Care deliver 10 million hours of care annually to people with learning disabilities, autism, mental health concerns, dementia and complex care needs. Their revolutionary inclusive volunteering model sees a partner with sporting events like the Rugby League World Cup and UEFA Women's Euro, enabling thousands with complex barriers to enjoy sport. To find out how you can work with the charity or access their support, visit communityintegratedcare.co.uk. Now, back to the interview, as John explains why rugby doctors would often smuggle mobile phones on the pitch. In rugby union, you become part of the management team. You're, you're connected up to the coaching staff, so you're taking messages on. So you, you have a, a tactical role as well, as well as the medical role. And obviously, you, when you're on the field, you can communicate to the coach saying, Joe Bloggs is injury, you know, he might last another couple of minutes or whatever. And I can obviously pass messages on to the captain. And because when I first started with rugby at, at the international level, um, the coaches weren't allowed on the field at half time. you know. So we the players stayed on the, on the field at half time. We could take messages on from the coaching staff. And then there was the advent of mobile phones and we could take a smuggle a mobile phone on at half time. The coach could talk to the you know, we thought we were being very, you know, high tech. And then it's now obviously, you know, the players go in at half time and the players are looking at videos and, you know, iPads and things like that from the technical staff about what's happening in the game and obviously we can we can assess injuries properly. So have you ever got in the way of the action when you've been on? Yeah, yeah, I did. I got a couple of times I um when I, we were playing all that game in Marseille, I went on to see a player, and one of our players, Bruce Rahana, came flying down the sideline uh, with a ball. He got tackled by a very vigorous Frenchman, and both of us ended in, they had those sort of troughs at the side of the field, you know, like a, a motion, and we both ended up in there. And then uh, another time, uh, I was on the field, and then the play starts coming your way, and, it, and the best thing I found is just actually to stay stationary, because if you move, you invariably will go the direction of the, the ball. And we've had other situations on the field. You may remember a Irish referee got taken out by a spectator and we were playing an all-black Springbok game in Durban, Colin McHugh, I think Colin McHugh, and uh, he'd stick out of the shoulder. So Richie McCall, one of the South sort of immediately dived on this big, large African man who, who'd come onto the field. And then I reduced the, the referee's shoulder, dislocated shoulder, and we took him off the field. So... He was the, the worst injury I've had from a, a referee. I mean, I had referees 
get injured on the field before that. So you reduced his shoulder on the pitch? Yeah, it wasn't, it wasn't that difficult. You know, it sounds more dramatic than it is, you know, but it was, he was out of the game. And then we had a situation about 20 years ago where Jonathan Kaplan was refereeing a Bledisloe Cup game in Wellington. And the All Blacks managed to conspire through their own bad play a series of penalties which ended up with John Eels kicking a winning goal. I don't know if you remember that. that and it was a fair enough penalty and things like that. But as Jonathan Kaplan was going off the field, the Walkers crowd was started throwing, uh, you know, cans and bottles and all sorts of things at him. So one of the players, Norm Maxwell, and I went over and sort of protected him and ran him down the tunnel. You know, it was obviously a terrible thing uh, to have happened, you know, but uh, it wasn't a good reflection on the crowd. You know, they were taking the pent-up frustration, which should have been at the All Blacks for giving a series of penalties away when they had the game won. And then John Eels had a magnificent kick from about 40 metres to win the game. And, and, and so it's, it sounds, you know, when I asked you about your World Cup memories earlier, your first thought was the All Blacks never won one when I was there. And you mentioned there about being used, you know, when you come on the pitch as, a, as almost a, a tactical device to get around some, some of the loopholes. But is that, is that a difficult part of being a, a rugby doctor as well as sort of taking you the emotion of being a team player out of it as well? Yeah, that, that, that's, that's, you know, I mean, I, I got involved in as a team doctor when I was still playing the game and I was playing with some of the players in the All Black team and I played against most probably 10 of them, you know, so you knew the guys and, and I think that was a hard thing. You think, I'm here for in a technical capacity first. I'm not here to cheer on the All Blacks or, you know, to help my mates win the game or anything like that. That's certainly when I was younger, you know, I had to sort of keep telling myself, you know, I'm, I'm not a player. I'm not the coach. Uh, I'm obviously passionate about the game, but I've got to do my job. And it, that has to come first. So you have to keep reminding yourself. And you're as disappointed as anyone else when you lose a game or something doesn't go well. And, um, you know, things don't go well. I can remember in 99 when we lost the game against France, we had to then think, OK, I've got a professional. We've got a, another game, third and fourth player from Cardiff in three days' time. Let's sort out the players and make sure we do our job as best we can. When all I wanted to do was go and sit down somewhere and have a few beers and, you know, the worst that happened, so to speak. You know, you think, well, you've got to get on with the job and do what's what's right. So kind of on similar lines then, what, what personality traits uh, are required for a doctor to be able to, to work at the elite level of rugby that you did? I mean, it's hard to know because, I mean, I think you obviously got to have a good general knowledge of, you know, of medicine. That, that goes without saying. And I think that the thing to remember is it's not all broken bones or things like that. You know, I mean, as I mentioned before, I was looking after Joan Alomi. I looked after John Kerr and, you know, he had a severe depressive illnesses when he was an all back and we're treating him, diabetics and things like that. You you have the other things you have to deal with, hemorrhoids and, you know, infections and, and all the unglamorous stuff. It's, you know, um, in 95, we had gastroenteritis going through the team, you know, the so-called food poisoning in South Africa. Those those sort of things happen, you know, you're planning the travel because obviously living in New Zealand, coming to the UK as, a, as far as you can travel, basically, how do you best deal with jet lag and giving advice on that? The sleeping problems, the use of, you know, drugs like melatonin and things like that. Going to South Africa, playing at altitude, what's the best way to, to deal with that? So you've got to have a general knowledge. I mean, obviously, you then need to be able to uh, have a good orthopedic understanding. So you don't know most most injuries, but you've got to be able to, you know, inject joints and do the, the appropriate sort of things like that. Because a number of players play with 
minor injuries, which they may or may not need some local anaesthetic to help them along. It's optimizing their, their medical treatment. And the hardest thing is sometimes is deciding when a player is fit to return to play. Are we being too conservative? I mean, I imagine if we're looking at the All Blacks this week, I've got three or four key players who are unavailable through injury who may be a week away. And uh, if you give the wrong advice, uh, that can be harmful to the team and the player. And it's certainly in the um, 2003 World Cup, we played the semi-final against Australia. And I believed Tana Rumaga was fit to play the game. I had a posterior cruciate ligament rupture earlier in the tournament. And the trainer thought, oh, he's not, not sharp enough, you know, and not good enough. And so we, the coach decided not to play him. And arguably it cost us the World Cup. I had Leon McDonald played, good player, but not a centre. And where did the Australians score? Where, you know, Tana Rumaga would have been. You don't know. So keeping players out of the game or pushing them back too soon, knowing your players. There's some players can play with injury, some can't. You know, Buck Shelford could break a hand and play the next week sort of thing. It wouldn't worry them. Other players would be would play with their mind. So you have to understand. So you have to have an understanding of your players. And also when I was training in sports medicine, one of the, the wiser orthopedic surgeons said, when a player has an injury, you've got to look at this sort of psychological aspects of it. That, you know, if it's an older player, he may be looking for a way out with dignity. You know what I mean? At the end of a career, you know, I, I didn't get dropped. My, my knee was no good. So there's all those sort of little combinations. Sort of things. I'm not saying every player is doing that, but there's those, those sort of aspects to it as well. And then also, I guess, you know, the ability to deal with pressure, because obviously, you know, there's the pressure of, as you say, telling a coach when a player's ready to go back. But then also, you know, you mentioned earlier reducing, you know, the Irish referee's shoulder on the pitch in front of thousands of fans. Now, I'd, I'd, I'd argue that 99% of doctors don't tend to do their work being watched by, you know, 60, 70,000 people. That must be a bit of pressure as well. Yeah, oh, you do. And you get criticism all the time. People write in, in those days for the newspaper or whatever, or nowadays even on social media criticise something that you've done, you know, that uh, you shouldn't have done this or he wasn't fit or, you know, and you just got to, you got to rock with that. And, and and certainly I wouldn't routinely reduce the shoulder on the pitch, you know, take them as, and, and rugby and rugby leagues have rules now. You can't do featuring on the sideline sort of thing, so it has to be done in a proper, and, and that, that's appropriate as well. And we've got rules in rugby now, the blood bin, you know, the head bin, those sorts of things too. So you can take the player inside and properly assess them and obviously we have a protocol for assessing a player with a potential head injury as he fit to return to play or not but you know there are some things you do on the field you might put a finger back in place on the field you know you may have seen that enough often enough and the physio you know, might then just tape it up so I think that that's allowable but not often do you put a, a shoulder back in on, on the field uh, unless it spontaneously goes back in. And, and do you find you know obviously you played the game but then you know when you were, you became a rugby doctor, did you find that you consumed the game differently? You watched it differently? Did you start anticipating injuries and things like that? Yeah, you do. And and I find that often I'd watch a game, you know, as a doctor, you know, I'm involved, you know, you're taking messages out. And actually, you didn't see much of the game. You're watching various things, you know, you think, oh, oh no, Gary Witten got injured in that last rock. I better just keep an eye on him, but see if he can, it's limping away or it's got better or whatever. And often I'd watch the video of the game afterwards and you think, oh, I missed all that, you know what I mean? And believe it or not, being on the sideline, you don't actually get a great view of the game. You know, you're in the middle of it sometimes. 
but you think, well, how did that winger beat that guy on the, well, how far away was from touch or whatever? So you, you get a good view and a bad view, if you, if you know what I mean. And, and it's, it's difficult. I mean, I've had the, the good fortune or bad fortune to look after three of my sons playing professional rugby and also my uh, younger brother, a professional rugby player, played in New Zealand and, and the UK, and my brother-in-law, an all-black captain. And so you have that connection as well. You know, you think, well, God, if I get it wrong, my sister-in-law will give me a hard time, you know, and uh, or his mother or uh, or my wife will give me, if it's my her son's playing, you know, and uh, he's trying to get it right. I mean, I had a situation with one of my sons recently. He um, was playing Wellington for North Harbour and had a very minor head injury, but the I had a look at him and I thought, he's okay. And the independent match doctor took him off and assessed and said, oh, look, I think he's failed the concussion test. And of course, my son was roping ball with me, and I said, "Well, I can't overrule that." And so it was a bit of a thing. I said, "I didn't. I thought you're okay, and I told you that." But about erring on the side of caution. Bit, bit of a family domestic, was it? Oh no, he's, he's not that sort of kid, you know. But uh, hardly a kid. But no, but uh, he, he could see it. But at the time, you you want to play off, and he and, and I think he's most probably right. You know, the truth was, but that's the way it is. So. I mean, that's that's the that's the thing, isn't it? That, that rugby players, you know, you you mentioned people like Buck Shelford, who have, you know, infamous. For his, you know, that incident with his testicle, scrotal injury, yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. But it just makes you think that these rugby players, certainly back in the day, maybe not so much now, but they were like the the knight out of Monty Python with the arm hanging off and saying it tis but a scratch. Yeah, well, Buck was like that. You know, I I played with Buck and against Buck, and and, and I can tell you a story. It was hard. We, we were playing winter play a game against Otago for North Harbour. And one of our players got injured. So in those days, we took the, the squad, you know, I think it's 21 players in those days, so 15 and six reserves. So basically, this player on the day of the game was sick. And I was about 34, 35 at that stage. And Buck says to me, well, you'll have to play. I said, Buck, I'm the doctor. I'm not playing. You know, I said, oh, God, you know, and he said, oh, you can play. You're you. okay. So I ended up on the bench. And for a game against Otago, and at that stage, the I was reserve loose forward, and the Otago back uh, three were Mike Brewer's an All Black, Paul Henderson was an All Black, and another guy Brent Brent Pope who was should have been an All Black, and I was terrified, you know, thinking, oh my god, if, and in those days you sat in the grandstand, if you remember, you know, the players that no warm up or anything like that, and freezing cold. And I thought, well, they're going to pull an injury in the last minute of the game. I have to run on. And I won't even feel my toes. You know? But I think so. That was the one unexpected thing with Buck, and he expected everyone else to do what he said. And he was a hard man to argue. Lovely guy, but it's hard to argue against him. No, that's it. And I can imagine it must be hard to to be a doctor as well for for people like Buck Shelford and, and others like him at the time. Yeah, yeah but he, he so saying that he he listened to advice. You know what I mean? And, and I can remember one game. He, he broke his hand playing the game, and I had just manipulated the boat a bit to put it back in the position I wanted to meet We strapped it up, and he played on and played well. And it wasn't until the next day, we I forgot about it in the game, he didn't say anything after. And next day, he said, do you think we should get an x-ray of this hand? It might or not, you know? And he'd put up with it all night. We x-rayed it, and it didn't change our treatment. But, and he played, played next week, but, you know, very young. But he, he, he was tough, but he wasn't sort of, Macho in that sense, you know what I mean? He wasn't sort of a, he wasn't a violent player. He was an aggressive player, but not violent. But no, no, great respect for him, a very hard player. So in terms of injuries then, are there any that, you know, were, were really quite serious that you that you had to deal with? Yeah, I mean, you, you know, I've had the whole run, the injuries, I mean, 
the one which was most probably the most devastating was Michael Jones who were playing um, Argentina and, and at Wellington and he was running through you know he was a world class player and he went to kick a ball and then one of the actually fell on his leg and it was a, like a gunshot the noise of all the ligaments on his knee I was about 10 metres away I thought he'd broken his legs the noise you know it was unbelievable Michael even talks about it I went onto the field to examine his knee and it was loose in every direction you know what I mean oh Christ normally you immediately look at him up. He, he said yeah, and subsequently said, I knew straight away when I saw your face that something terrible had happened there, you know. And it was a you know, catastrophic injury, which uh, due to a fabulous surgeon, Barry Titchens, he got back on the field. And, but I hate to think of how many of those, you know, I mean, that was by far the worst knee injury. Um, I mean, I've been involved at club level with you know, players who've had cardiac arrest and things like that, which obviously are pretty disconcerting. And But you get some... Some Cavalier here. I mean, we had, when I was looking after the Warriors, we had an under twenty grade team, and one of our players had this. We found out subsequently he had a cardiac arrest at training, and he had this rare abnormality called the Long QT syndrome. And we got him assessed properly, and the cardiologist said, "Well, he needs to have a defibrillator put in, and he shouldn't play contact sport." And his parents said, well, if he does that, can he play rugby league? He said, no, no, no this is life-threatening. And they said, oh, we, we don't want him to have it. And they then took him to another club in Australia. And so, unfortunately, and they banned me from giving any medical information, but unfortunately, the CEO of this club, uh, I can't name the club, uh, was an ex-Warriors player, and he, he rang me up and said, why can't we get any medical information on this player? I said, I'll get your doctor and have a chat with him, and if they want me, I'm happy to pass from medical. But I was constrained. I was terrible. But And that was the parents saying they were willing to sacrifice their son because, you know, he was a very promising player. But no, so you, you do get some bizarre things happening. That is bizarre, isn't it? And so in terms of sort of urban myths or, or misconceptions about the role of the rugby doctor, is there, are, are there any that you constantly sort of have plagued you throughout your career when you introduce yourself and say what you do? Oh, I think they think it's all beer and skittles. <laughs> I mean, it's certainly in the early days, there was certainly a lot of beer around the place. But it's a 24-7 job, you know, because obviously your job starts game time and obviously you, you get tied up after the game. Often you're, you're taking a player off to get their teeth sorted out or getting an x-ray or a scan or things like that. I think that anyone who's contemplating that needs to have a good spouse <laughs> or a partner um, because you're going to be away from home. And I get a lot of young doctors who say, look, I'd love to have your career. And I said, yeah, but, you know, you, you won't have any weekends. And uh, a lot of the current people won't do it. You know, we had the, the Blues, one of the top provincial sides in New Zealand, a very good young doctor, but he, he's given it up because he, he can make more money doing normal medicine he could spend time with young family and things like that. So, I mean, there are sacrifices. You know, my my children sort of grew up in rugby changing rooms and around rugby clubs, and I think you know, they they subsequently play the sport and love the sport. But you know, I certainly didn't make them play it. But they they wanted to. You know, you could, I think an understanding wife is, and unfortunately, my wife likes sport and you know, is very sports minded. But I was away. I missed the birth of my daughter. I was in France with the All Blacks. I forever regret that. I mean, she came two weeks early, and I thought I'd planned it perfectly to be back in time. And, and you know, with my sons, I missed you know some important events in their life because I was away. You know, but you know, there is a price to pay. It's, it's great fun. I think it's most probably harder nowadays as a sports doctor, especially at that very high level. You're under a lot of, as you say, scrutiny. 
and everyone's going to second guess you and, and social media can post photographs of every x-ray they've ever taken or they can access things. So it, it can be tough. You've got to learn to be able to deal with the media and certainly in the time I was with the All Blacks and the Warriors, we, you got some media training, you know, especially if you're working with people like John Hart who are pretty media savvy, you know, and those sort of things. It's a part of the job explaining the injuries and the recovery and and obviously, Joan Labour was at about another level looking after him with his medical problems. We we kept it quiet. His medical treatment was done at my surgery after hours. Uh, we'd go and consult with a kidney specialist, you know, after hours. And Joan is a hard person to hide when you go anywhere with him. You know, he's quite, you know, he, he stood out quite a bit. You know, when you're six foot five and 115 kgs and you know, the most remarkable person in world rugby. So we, uh, we kept it quiet for a while. So managing him was a challenge, but it was a, it was a great challenge. Finally then, John, I should ask you about your own health because I know you had a, a bit of a scare a few years back. Are you, how are you doing? Are you, are you all good? Yeah, good. You know, I had a, um, what's called a, a viral cardiomyopathy. So I had a virus which damaged my heart and then um, I knew about it and I was on some treatment for it, but I was leading a pretty normal life. And I went to, I don't know if you know, CrossFit, you know, the horrible gym stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I did a workout, which apparently I did quite well, I can't remember it. And the next thing I remember, waking up in intensive care three days later, and I had a cardiac arrest, and basically I was resuscitated by an off-duty policeman who was at the class and some other people. I was ventilated for three days, woke up. Now I've got a defibrillator in my chest, um, which fortunately hasn't had to go off. Ironically, the only time it ever looked like possibly going off was that my son was playing against Auckland last year and he managed to get thinned in for pulling down a ruck and they got a penalty try and all sorts of things. And the computer printout showed my heart went very dangerously fast at that time when we worked it backwards. Because they, they said to me, what happened on this date? And I said, well, what date was it? And I, I was totally unaware of it. But no, I'm, I'm, I'm good. I mean, I got to the normal ageing joints and things like that, but no, I'm, I'm still moving around looking after a rugby side and, and working full-time. Good. Well, I'm pleased to hear it. Well, don't get too excited about the World Cup then if... Uh... <laughs> no, 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 no. Many thanks to John for his time and insight and also to Ben at the New Zealand Rugby Foundation for his help facilitating our conversation. The Foundation advocates for and champions the safety of all players in rugby and you can find out more about their work via the link in the show notes. If you know of someone who'd make a good subject for a future Unsung podcast, get in touch with a recommendation at unsungpodcast.com. Unsung is produced by Matt Cheney. Artwork is by Matt Walker and the executive producer is Sam Barry. My name is Alexis James and I'll be back next month with a new guest from behind the scenes in sport. Thanks for listening and catch you next time on Unsung. Unsung.